This week on the show, we have Intel docs being misinterpreted by almost any operating system. We look at the Mininet SDN emulator, also cover a couple of do's and don'ts for FreeBSD newbies, as well as the OpenBSD community going gold. At Mastery is a must-read, and there's the distributed object store MinIO for FreeBSD how-to in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 246, Properly Coordinated Disclosure, recorded for the 16th of May, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. A new week, a new pre-recording for you, because I'm not actually there this week you're watching, but um, not out of the country. I just, uh, I'm on a training which covers four weeks, so Wednesday is not my normal time. Uh, but that's not interesting. What's more interesting is the headlines that we have this week for you, because there is apparently inter-documentation. There's a little flaw in there, which seems like the instruction was misinterpreted in almost every operating system, but almost everyone. And Alan yeah. has the details. Uh, so, over on the Triple Fault blog, we have a statement in the System Programming Guide uh, for the Intel 64 and IA32 architectures, the Software Developer's Manual, um, was mishandled in the development of some or all operating system kernels, resulting in unexpected behavior uh, in the debug instruction exceptions that are deferred if you use the move SS or pop SS instruction Um as demonstrated by, for example, a privilege escalation bug in Windows, macOS, some Zen configurations, or uh, kernel crashes in FreeBSD and Linux. Hmm. Uh, OS kernels may not expect the order of events and therefore experience unexpected behavior when it happens. Uh, so basically, when you're setting up the debug flag uh, in user mode or whatever, uh, but if you do certain instructions it's going to get deferred when that uh, it waits until later to come up. And if that comes up after you switched into the kernel, you can end up causing things you didn't expect, right? So uh, if the instruction following the move or pop SS instruction is an instruction like syscall, sysenter, or int3, uh, that transfer control of the operating system to the kernel, uh, the debug exception is delivered after the transfer into the kernel, and the OS kernel may not expect that in that way and it'll cause problems there's a full github uh or sorry a full white paper on how it happens and on github they have a working example uh, that you can use on a windows system to test if your machine is vulnerable um and uh, people are working on porting that to different architectures okay uh, so if you want to know more about how it actually works uh there's a pdf um but there's also some more detail in the commits to FreeBSD. Uh, so it says, prepare the DB debug handler for deferred triggers of watch points. Uh, since the move SS and pop SS instructions defer all interrupts and exceptions, uh, for the next instruction, it is possible that the user space watch point trap executes uh, on the first instruction of the kernel entry for a syscall or BPT and so on. Um, in this case, uh, the debug exception uh, should be treated similar to a non-masking interrupt on AMD64, 
we must always load the GS base variable, um, even if it, uh, even if the trap comes from the kernel mode, and then um, load the kernel page table root into the CR3 register. Moreover, the trap must use the dedicated stack because we are still on the user stack when trapping on syscall entry, and so on. Uh, but worse, due to some CPU erratas, it is not always possible to detect that the user space watchpoint triggered uh, just by looking at the DR6 register. Uh, in the trap function, compare the user uh, or compare the trap um, instruction pointer with the known unsafe entry points, and if matched, uh, then prepend the watch point. Uh, or pretend that the watch point didn't actually happen, and ignore it so that we don't end up executing in kernel mode. Uh, and then there's also uh, a couple of thank you messages in the commit. In particular, thank you to the uh, Microsoft um, incident response team. And in particular, Greg Lenti and Nate Warfield for coordinating this response uh, or the response to this issue across multiple vendors, in particular, uh, all the open source operating systems. Uh, and also, uh, the FreeBSD project would like to thank the computer recycling uh, at the Working Center in Kitchener um, for making hardware available to allow us to test the patch on a bunch of different CPU families. Hmm, okay. Yeah, you don't and, always have the right CPUs yes, at hand. Especially having ones uh, that have the CPU errata that makes this harder to detect. Uh, and also, uh, thanks to Matthew Dillon, uh, who the design of this patch was discussed with. Mm -hmm. And so there's also a security advisory uh, for FreeBSD that uh, provides more information. Specifically, uh, the impact is that any authenticated local attacker, so someone who's actually successfully logged into the box, may be able to read sensitive data in kernel memory, uh, control low-level operating system functions, or panic the system. Hmm. Okay, so you don't have to become root first or get root. Right. Normal uh, user can, you do can that. use that. You could use this exploit to get root, possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And there are patches for FreeBSD 11.1 and 10.4 that you can install already. Yeah, the advisory has all the information how to patch your system. Yep. Uh, there's also uh, a post on the Dragonfly blog about their uh, fixes for this issue. Uh, and there's more detail there. Um, on the, at the CERT database, NetBSD uh, says they do not support the debug register and therefore are not affected. Uh, so they seem fine. Uh, it appears OpenBSD is also not affected, possibly for the same reason, although the message insert says, we are not aware of further vendor information regarding this vulnerability. Mm -hmm. But okay. it is listed as not affected. Okay. And uh, yeah. over on the Illumos blog, they have a post uh, from Alex Wilson uh, saying, I've been asked to write up a quick summary for developers uh, of where things are with the um, this particular CVE. Uh, short summary, we're not vulnerable and don't need any fixes. The longer summary, um, the SS register write shadow only produces an exploitable bug when determined, uh, or when combined with the ability to control the DR registers uh, so that you can set a harbor read watch point up to the address that you're going to pop or mov ss uh, normal tf debug in such uh, exceptions 
don't get delayed the same way the DR watch points do. Uh, we don't allow the debug register to be controlled by userland today. Um, we use them in KMDB, but userland watch points are constructed simply by changing the present bit in the pitch table. As a result, there's no means to create a delayed debug exception uh, like the ones in the exploit in the Lumos. If we add support uh, for using the DR registers from userland at some point, we'll need to watch out to not accidentally introduce this vulnerability. Uh, for those who are curious, we were read into the disclosure process by the MSRC incident response team on these bugs pretty early and had plenty of time uh, to look at them before the public announcement. So here's hoping we get more of that going forward. Okay, so this was more like a properly coordinated disclosure. Yes, hence the name mm -hmm. of the episode. <laughs> okay, yeah, so thanks everyone for working on this and uh, providing the hardware and uh, the actual and, uh, patch writing. Via the chat room, uh, Peter Hessler of OpenBSD says they also don't implement the debug register, and so that's same, not vulnerable for the same reason that NetBSD isn't. Okay, excellent. One more thing less to worry about. Um, yeah, so if you're on FreeBSD on those two architectures, again, this is Intel 64 and IA32 architectures so far. Which um, is almost every computer. Yeah, so <laughs> if you're on FreeBSD, uh, check out... Windows, yeah. Linux... Uh, and OS X are also vulnerable, so you need to update most of your computers probably. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next up, we have a guest post over at the FreeBSD Foundation's blog uh, titled A Look at uh, SDN Emulator Mininet. And SDN, of course, stands for Software Defined Networking. Uh, so this is a guest post by Ayaka Koshibe, which um, I came uh, interested in at the topic itself, because I saw the topic at uh, Asia BSDCon and thought, oh, this is interesting. I should watch this talk. And uh, this is basically a little bit about the topic. So Yeah, um, I, I saw her talk at BSDCan, I think it was, uh, when it was on FreeBSD. And then I was a little curious uh, why the talk at Asia BSDCon was about OpenBSD. Uh, and it kind of goes on to explain it here. It says, uh, at this year's Asia BSD Con, uh, she presented a talk about software-defined network emulation, uh, specifically called Mininet, uh, and her ongoing work to make it more portable. So she says, uh, that presentation was focused on the OpenBSD version of the port, and I breezed past the details that I had also had a version of Mininet uh, working on FreeBSD. Because I had... Uh, because I was given the opportunity, I'd like to share a bit about the FreeBSD version of Mininet, uh, which actually came first. Um, so she says, it will not only be about what Mininet is, uh, but why it might be interesting, uh, but also recounting uh, her experiences as a user making a first-time attempt to port some application to FreeBSD. And I think that's why it's especially interesting, because just to get the insight on someone's first time actually trying to go through the process of taking an application that is only for Linux at uh, the beginning and making it work on FreeBSD. Mm, deporting work. Uh, yeah, so she says, Mininet started off as a tool used by academic researchers to emulate OpenFlow networks uh, when they didn't have convenient access to actual network hardware. Uh, because of its history, Mininet uh, became associated strongly with networks that use OpenFlow for their control channels but it has become fairly popular among developers working on it and among several universities for research and teaching about software-defined networking as well. 
so she says, I began using Mininet as an intern at my university's network research lab. I was using FreeBSD at the time and wasn't too happy to learn that Mininet would only work uh, on Linux. I gradually got tired of having to run a Linux VM just to use Mininet. And one day I, I clicked in my mind that I should actually just port it to FreeBSD. Um, so there's more detail about what SDN is and what they're doing with it in the post, but I can't read the whole thing. Um, so Mininet creates a topology using the resource virtualization features that Linux has. Specifically, nodes are just bash scripts uh, running in the network namespace, and uh, the nodes are interconnected using the virtual Ethernet interfaces, or VETH. Um, switches and controllers are just nodes uh, where the shell script is running the right commands to configure a software switch or start a controller application. Mininet can therefore be viewed as a series of Python libraries that run the system commands necessary to create a network namespace and the virtual Ethernet interfaces and assemble the specified topology and coordinate how user commands aimed at nodes, uh, since they're just shells, are actually run. So coming back to porting it to FreeBSD, I chose to use VNet jails to replace the network namespaces and the ePair interfaces to replace the VETH links. Uh, for the actual software-defined networking functionality, I needed at least one switch and one controller, and that can be uh, chose Open vSwitch uh, for the switch since it was available in ports and you know it's well known in the software-defined networking world. Makes uh, sense. And then she used uh, Ryu or Ryu. R-Y-U, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, for the controller, since it's being actively developed and used and supports the most recent versions of OpenFlow. Uh, so says, I have discussed the possibility of upstreaming this work. Uh, although they were excited about it, uh, then they started asking about scripts for creating VMs with MiniNet pre-installed, uh, working it into their continuous integration support, uh, and so on. I started uh, taking a look at the release scripts uh, for creating a VM, and after seeing that it would be much easier to use the scripts if I got uh, Mininet and Roo uh, added to the ports tree, I also tried a hand at submitting some ports. Uh, for CI support, Mininet is using Travis, which unfortunately doesn't support FreeBSD. Uh, so for this, she plans to look at a minimalist CI tool called ContBuild. Uh, for continuous build, uh, which looks simple enough to get running and is written uh, in a portable way, so it's not going to be FreeBSD specific. Uh, so she goes on, uh, this is very much a work in progress and one going at a glacial pace, even though the company that I work for does use Mininet, uh, they don't use FreeBSD, so this is something that I've been working on in my free time. Uh, early on, it was, a, uh, it was a learning curve that made the process slow when I started started, I hadn't done anything more than run FreeBSD on a laptop and uneventfully build a few applications from the ports tree. Uh, so right off the bat, using VNet jails meant I had to learn how to compile a custom kernel. Um, uh, that part was easy as the handbook is clear about how to do it. Uh, when I moved from using FreeBSD 10.3 to 11, I found that I could panic my machine by quickly creating and destroying uh, many switches and jails. I submitted a bug report, but decided to go one step further and actually try to debug the panic myself. Uh, with the help of a few people well-versed in systems programming and the developer's handbook, I was able to come up with a fix and get it accepted. Cool. 
Uh, this pretty much brings my uh, porting experience to the present day, where I'm slowly working out uh, the pieces that she mentioned earlier. Uh, in the beginning, I thought that this mini net port would be a weekend project, where I came out knowing a thing or two about using VNet jails and with one less VM to run on my machine. Instead, it has become a crash course in building and debugging kernels, submitting bug reports, patches, and ports, uh, and, and learning about system debugging. Hmm. I'd like to mention that I wouldn't have gotten far at all if it weren't for the helpful folks, the documentation, and just how debuggable FreeBSD is. I enjoy good challenges and learning experiences, and this has definitely been both. Hmm. See, you learn a lot. So uh, big thank you to Ayaka for working on uh, MiniNet and porting it to FreeBSD and OpenBSD, uh, but also for sharing her experiences here uh, on the blog post. Yep. If you want to see uh, the OpenBSD version of her talk, I've added a link to the show notes. Um, I didn't think to find the older version of the talk uh, from, I think, one or two BSD cans ago. Uh, but if you're coming to BSD can this year, she will be presenting it live again. Uh, so a great opportunity to ask more questions and find out how much further she might have gotten since then. Yeah, what's the news and uh, the current status? Yep. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash bsdnow and get in touch with them and have them design the right uh, solution to solve your problem. Yeah, in the server space, especially in the open source server space, if you're looking for a rig that saves your data, like backups or a general file share solution, as well as some specific server that has a lot of CPUs or a lot of memory because you're running a virtualization system, give them a call and they will ask you not directly what kind of hardware you want, but what kind of problem you're trying to solve. And from there, they will build you the proper system with the right components that work together. Yeah, you know, if you look at other servers you can buy off the shelf, they'll always talk about can do up to this many IOPS or something. Um, with When you're designing a system, what you actually want to do is build to a guaranteed level of IOPS. It's like, even in the worst case scenario, we'll never get less than this many IOPS. Uh, and that is how you actually build a machine that's going to support your workload. Yeah, because then you can make an educated baseline about how much it can really yes, deliver. Like, because it turns out your use case is never going to be the best case scenario. It might not be the worst case scenario, but if you make sure the machine can deliver the performance you need with some overhead to, to grow, uh, or with some headroom to grow, um, and you know that it'll always be able to deliver at least that much, uh, then you can be very comfortable using that server. Yeah. And so you should, uh, if you do need storage rather than just uh, general compute servers and so on, you should check out the new TrueNAS M series uh, with its... NVMe write cache and N or sorry, NVDIM write cache and NVMe read cache uh, for ZFS. It is the highest performance storage appliance you can get. Yeah, there you get some definite IOPS out of that system. Yeah, and if you head over to their blog, uh, you can see the recap of some open source conferences I went to recently. In particular, oh, there's my face. Um, <laughs> Uh, they just got back from <laughs> Linux Fest Northwest, which I was also at. Uh, 
so they say. Uh, in its 19th year, <laughs> Linux Fest Northwest is the original community Linux Fest and is easily the uh, lowest stress event on my calendar. <laughs> I think this is written by Michael Dexter, probably. That means something, yeah. If that's the lowest stress event for him. Yes, it's Dexter. <laughs> Uh, so you can say, okay. uh, in Bellingham, Washington, may seem like an odd place to host a conference. It's actually the natural end of the line for tech workers to migrate up the West Coast from Silicon Valley in search of an affordable place to live. Hmm. Uh, and it's close to the Canadian border. Uh, so there were actually quite a few Canadians at the conference. Oh. Uh, although apparently some attendees travel uh, from as far away as Germany and Taiwan and making it an international event despite its remote location. Okay. And they had a, you can see here, there's a FreeBSD and FreeNAS booth. And we had uh, one laptop running TrueOS and showing the FreeNAS interface. And then I had my FreeBSD laptop running just Lumina as the desktop manager, but vanilla FreeBSD showing off FreeBSD. Uh, and we had uh, FreeBSD journals and lots of pamphlets and so on. Yeah, there's always a lot of uh, conferences where IX uh, has a combined booth with uh, FreeBSD, so they present mm -hmm. both themselves and the project uh, that they base most of their systems on. Yeah. Uh, in addition, the booth uh, was staffed by FreeBSD co-founder Rod Grimes, uh, myself, uh, user Jason Barber, and uh, our friend Michael Dexter. Um and we talked to lots of people about FreeBSD, the FreeBSD Foundation, FreeNAS, TrueOS, and all kinds of BSD-related questions from the audience. Uh, I was also part-time at the Jupiter Broadcasting booth, uh, meeting with fans of this podcast and uh, the old TechSnap podcast I used to do and so on. That's a win-win almost uh, of the things you were involved with. Yes, and actually, the Wi-Fi at the event uh, well, not the web. The network at the event was actually powered by PFSense. Ah, well, that's the BSD spirit. <laughs> yeah, so definitely check out IX Systems, their blog, and everything that they do. And if you're in definite need of a server, give them a call, and uh, you will find that they will give you uh, the right amount of uh, power for your problem. Yeah, uh, and Dexter also gave a talk about switching to the BSDs, the crash course in FreeBSD, FreeNAS, TrueOS, and OpenBSD, uh, trying to convince some of the Linux users to give a BSD a try. Oh, I wanted to watch that. I still haven't got to that. Okay. Yep, and I actually uh, helped somebody at the booth get the Wi-Fi working on, on their uh, new laptop. Oh, that's the best kind of events. If it's a two-day event, on the first day you convince something or someone to try it out, and on the next day they come back, put it, put their laptop in your hands, and say, "Hey, I got this far in the installer. Help me." Or yeah, um, it was to set they needed up. to add the the line to the loader.conf to load the firmware for their Intel Wi-Fi. Oh. It was uh, an easy fix. They already had FreeBSD on the machine uh, when they showed up, but it was great. Okay. And then they go home and say, ah, what a great conference this was. Yep. Anyway, check that out on ixsystems.com slash blog. Okay. So speaking of BSD beginners, uh, we have 10 beginner do's and don'ts for FreeBSD over at the FreeBSD forums. So this is a listing uh, of basically some of the 
stuff you should avoid um, because it bit most people in the rear um, when they started out in their BSD experience. So they try to help you a little bit with these those and don'ts. So the first one they list is don't mix ports and binary packages. Yes, so don't try to either compile everything yourself or mix that with ports. Decide which you want to run and um, yeah, don't don't try to mix those. Yeah, of course, that one's a little... Um, Sometimes you have to compile because... Well, it's, it's, well, the implication there is that you should just use ports for everything if, in that case. Um, right. It used to be a bigger problem. If you're... I guess you'd have to... If you're running the head version of the package set that's rebuilt every three days, it's not going to be as, as out of sync from the ports tree as if you're running the quarterly branch and there could be two and a half months of changes there. Mm. No, no, that's, yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. Um, but I guess beginners start with a stable release or a release. Uh, so there's, but they can still switch to, of course, uh, the not quarterly branches so that they get um, more frequent updates. It's totally up to them. Yeah. Uh, but if you're using the, the, live like a rolling release branch of packages then it's never going to be more than five days off of the ports tree that you're using and you're going to avoid a lot of the the chances of things being messed up uh like you would see uh here but you can also run into the problems uh where you know you've recompiled certain program with uh options and then the newer version gets updated in the ports tree and you're in package upgrade and it upgrades to the version from packages uh, and takes away the option you were depending on. Mm. Right, so you don't want that either. Uh, and so, yes, it's still good advice not to mix the two. Yeah. So number two is don't edit default files. So this is a handy tip for people who are starting out to configure their system to their liking. So when I started out, I remember very vividly that I uh, copied always etc defaults loader.conf to bootloader.conf. So what happened was that I created a kind of an include loop. Loader.conf was including the loader.conf and including the loader.conf and loader.conf. And what happens after a while is, well, the stack got full and I couldn't load anymore loader confs. So that's how <laughs> I learned this uh, trick the hard way. So you take the the defaults are basically there to tell you what kind of options there are, but you shouldn't change them. You should take them as a kind of a template and then use the rc.conf in etc or the boot loader.conf file, but ignore the defaults subdirectory. Don't edit those. Just use them to look up certain yeah. things. So the idea of the default subdirectory is when you update the OS, those files will always just be overwritten, not merged. And that way your local changes are in the other files. Aren't? Exactly. Yeah. And then you can uh, rest assured that your uh, files will in the default section, uh, the default folder will get the newest stuff. If there are changes, but they won't affect your uh, own config files right away. But sometimes you have to make those changes to, uh, make those options work. Okay, number three is don't mess with etc crontab. This is pretty much a universal Unix tip for beginners. Pretty much applies to all the Unixes, I guess, that have a crontab. So what you 
shouldn't do is run your favorite editor and run it on etc cron tab and edit away. So what you should do instead is to use crontab-e for your own uh, crontab because there you can make there are some checks in there I guess um, to make sure that the, uh, the formatting is right and that you didn't forget an important field and things like that. So that's a handy utility to help you um, make proper crontab entries because there's always the risk if you do a manual edit of an important config file like crontab you might end up well, well, the smallest yeah, worst so case if, is not working. Yeah, if you edit etc crontab and there's a syntax error, all the crontabs are going to stop. If you use the crontab-e command, when you go to save, if there's an error, it won't save it. It'll be like, there's a problem. Do you want to edit it again? Yeah, exactly. That comes next to the fourth uh, do's and don'ts, which is don't mess with etc pass wd and etc groups either. So that's more... Uh, dangerous because it deals with users and the groups account or the groups in the system. So if you're making a mess there and delete something that shouldn't be deleted, like the colons well, for field also separators. Problem here. Um, if you're familiar with Linux, you know there's the etc shadow file. That's where the actual passwords are. And then mm-hmm. etc password is not where the passwords are. It's kind of confusing. Um, and you have the same thing on FreeBSD, but it's etc master.password. Um, and so the master password file and the password files should be in sync at all times. Um, so if you use the VIPW command, it will open the master password file, let you edit it. It locks it. So someone else can't be trying to edit it at the same time. So they won't undo your changes or something. And then when you save it, it's going to update the ETC password file correctly. But also there are, um, compiled database versions of the master password and password files, uh, pwd.db and spwd.db. Um, and those are used by programs like top when they look up a username or uh, look up a user number to get the name. Uh, like LS does this when you're looking at directories. Cause in the file system, we don't store the username. We store the user ID. Mm-hmm. Um, well doing those lookups all the time is slow if you're having to read the whole text file, but it's faster if you can read the database. But if you edit the password file manually, now the master password file and the password file are out of sync and those databases don't get updated and your changes will appear in some places, not other places, and it gets very confusing. So yes, use the wrappers. They're much better. Yeah, there are programs written for that and uh, whether they are VIPW or VIGR or uh, PW itself, which can create users and uh, do all kinds of modifications, that will um, be something worth looking at. Number five, reconsider the removal of any options from your customized kernel configuration. So from some operating systems, you may be familiar with, oh, I need to recompile the kernel to make something work. But on the BSD, it's less important, I'd say, at least for um, beginners. This was always interesting. When I taught the Unix security class, we actually had a lab uh, designed by another professor, um, which was, you know, take the kernel and try to whittle it down and make it the, the smallest kernel that can boot and perform these things still uh, wins. But the number of people that would have problems like they would decide to remove SCSI support because I don't have any SCSI disks, but, oh, USB thumb drive is actually 
emulating SCSI, and so suddenly the USB drive doesn't work anymore. Um, and yes, nowadays that computers are less resource constrained, it's usually not worth it trying to customize a kernel and especially take a bunch of options out of it. Uh, actually, you can see here in their example, they've taken out the AHCI option. Uh, well, I'm, that's going to make your hard drives disappear, so have fun with that. <laughs> um, hopefully, in the nearish future, we'll have a new feature in FreeBSD where we'll have a much, much smaller generic kernel and it will auto-load the correct uh, device driver modules for you uh, based on the you know the PCI device IDs and so on that show up during boot. Yeah, all the system that what this kernel could can, can detect um, will load modules for you so that um, it can more dynamically more figure out. More drivers uh, will be modules instead of having to be built into the kernel. Uh, oftentimes, anything like storage or networking, we try to build it into the kernel uh, so that it'll just work. Um, because, you know, if people boot up and they don't see their network card, they're like, ah, stupid FreeBSD doesn't support this. Meanwhile, it's like, oh, you just need to load this module. So it made more sense to build them in. But if we can have uh, a much, much smaller kernel that will just load the right drivers, that'll be better. Exactly. Number six, don't change the root shell to something else. Even though you think that Bash and Z shell have much more capabilities, do not change the root shell for the root user. Yes, uh, I learned that one the hard way, oh, 10-ish years ago. Uh, I think back when some shell that I used uh, wasn't available in FreeBSD's base system or something, and uh, suddenly in the middle of an OS upgrade, I'd upgraded the kernel and part of useland but not the other part or something and i hadn't rebuilt the packages yet and suddenly my shell didn't work and i couldn't log in i couldn't sue to root because the shell would just crash immediately because of some library that was missing you know it was linked against an older version of libc or whatever hmm. uh and it was like oh how do i get in and luckily that's when you remember that there's that tour user yeah go backwards uh, and mm -hmm. its shell hadn't been changed, uh, and the little jiggery pokery and was able to uh, recover the system. But isn't yes. there also a shell in slash rescue that you could there is, use? Yes, but if you can't well, you log in, in first, root, you can't change root shell to something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, true. Don't change the root user shell. Uh, you know. Uh, as one of the later points says, don't run as root all the time anyway. And then That's the you, know, you can one, yeah. use Bash or ZSH <laughs> as, as your user. Although, make sure you have some user you can SSH in as that uses just the plain shell. Uh, because, you know, if you can only SSH to the box and your shell is ZSH and ZSH is crashing because you're in the middle of an upgrade or whatever, um, well, you can't sue to root if you can't log in as anybody else. Mm. So you yeah. always need uh, a backup user as well. Exactly. Number seven is, as we mentioned, don't use the root user all the time, which is also a good tip for all the Unixes out there. Because before you know it, that RMINF, RF minus slash, whoops, kills your system. Or well, slash you won't actually do that slash, on FreeBSD. Yeah. But so you get not on point. anymore, but oops. I deleted rc.conf. Oops, I deleted the kernel. Oops. And root can do everything. So be careful. Only use root if you need to. 
and then switch back to your normal user account. Yeah. Number eight, more backups is a thing. Yes. So if you happen to screw up your password file uh, by not using VIPW as we recommended, um, VAR Backup has a copy of it from last night. And maybe that will help you undo what you did. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. Yep, it's uh, a bunch of the files out of ETC are backed up there just to help you th with that. Mm -hmm. Number nine says that you should check the system integrity using ETC mTree. Yep, um, so this will tell you any files that should be installed but are missing uh, and so on. There's also a second one for this, especially if you're running a release. The freebsd-update command has an IDS subcommand or intrusion detection system. It will check the hash of all of the files and make sure they are what they should be for the release. Yeah, then you can so check whether the files any system files that have been modified uh, from the base install. Mm -hmm. Whereas mtree is nice for just checking uh, that the permissions are correct and that the files exist, but not the file contents. Yep. By the way, what a nice uh, host name they all have in the in the examples here, Unicron. Uh, that's that's what I like. Uh, <laughs> that was number nine, and number ten is what works for me doesn't have to work for you. So that pretty much uh, means that these items are pretty much best practices, but definitely not mandatory rules. Although they have been tried and uh, found to be much easier for users, uh, especially new users to use. Uh, and I mean, there's always the, oh, I know better and the hackish way and the quick way. But if you're starting out on your Unix journey, then you should heat those and make sure um, you're not messing things up earlier than you already <laughs> might do. So um, heat those tips and um, yeah, see how they will work for you. So, time for the news roundup this week, starting with OpenBSD Community Goes Gold for 2018. Yes, a uh, post over at the Undeadly OpenBSD Journal by Ken Westerbeck, uh, who's the manager of the OpenBSD Foundation, says that the monthly PayPal donations for, from the OpenBSD community, just regular users, have made the community uh, the FreeBSD Foundation's first gold-level sponsor of 2018. Uh, 2018 is the third consecutive year that the community has reached the gold level status or better. Uh, these monthly commitments by the community are our most reliable source of funds and thus the most useful for financial planning purposes. We are extremely thankful for the continued support and hope the community matches the 2017 achievement of the platinum donor status or even their 2016 uh, achievement of iridium status. Uh, but sign up now for your monthly donation. Note that Bitcoin contributions have been re-enabled now that the Bitcoin intermediary uh, has completed their Canadian paperwork again. Oh, excellent. Congratulations to the OpenBSD Foundation. Yes. And I guess they will put the money to good use. Yes, I imagine uh, basically all the open source uh, foundations at some point actually prefer continuous monthly donations, even in smaller amounts, than uh, big one-time donations from... Uh, companies or people just because knowing you have x dollars coming in every month and that you know if one of those people uh stop, decides to stop donating it's not going to be as big an impact whereas with the large donations you know it 
a lot of handling and uh, follow up and trying to make sure those people donate every year. Whereas, uh, you know, you can't count on that money next year. Whereas with monthly donations from a lot of separate people, you can expect that amount of money to keep coming in. Uh, yep. So it's much easier for planning purposes. Exactly. Yeah. That keeps us um, on the right track to saying, oh, we want to hire that person or we want to buy that server. For any kind of purpose, there's always good to have a little planning uh, horizon. Okay. So next up is a blog post by our friend Peter Hanstein about Ad Mastery, which recently came out by our favorite author, Michael W. Lucas. And he says well, Ad Mastery is your a your favorite author. No, Whoa. he said he was my favorite author. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'll do that. You, we'll see yeah. if I get another email like I did after my comment in last week's episode. <laughs> see, Michael will not immediately punch me in the face when he sees me. So um, back to the story. Ad Mastery is a must-read for real Unix people, he says. There goes um, Ed is the standard editor. Now there's a book out to help you master this fundamental Unix tool. So Peter writes, we've all seen the threads on mailing lists, Usenet news groups, and web forums about the relative merits of Emacs versus VI, including endless iterations of flame wars and sometimes even involving lesser-known or non-portable editing environments. And then, of course, from the Linux newbies, we have seen an endless stream of tweeted graphical memes about the editor Vim, aka VI approved, versus the various apparently friendlier to some options, such as GNU Nano. Apparently, even the improved versions of the classical and ubiquitous VI editor is a challenge even to exit for a significant subset of the younger generation. Yes, your choice of text editor or editing environment is a serious matter, mainly because text processing is so fundamental to our interactions with computers and Unix in particular, I guess. So for those of us who keep our systems on a real Unix, such as OpenBSD or FreeBSD, there is no real contest here. The OpenBSD-based system contains several text editors, including VI and the almost Emacs MG, but Ed remains the standard editor. Now Michael Lucas has written a book to guide the as-yet-uninitiated to the fundamentals of the original Unix text editor. It is worth keeping in mind that much of Unix and its original standard editor written back by the standard output and default user interface was more likely than not a printing terminal. So to some of us, reading and following the narrative of Ed Mastery is a trip down memory lane. Ah, oh, the good old days. Uh, to, to others, following along the text will illustrate the horror of the world of pre-graphic computer interfaces. For others, again, the fact that Ed doesn't use your terminal settings much at all offers hope of fixing things when something or somebody screwed up your system so you don't have a working terminal for that visual editor. Oh, yes. So a few add commands that you learn might not be too bad in case that's uh, the only editor that you have left at your disposal. Yeah. If you've uh, messed up your term cap or something and you can't start any other editor, uh, it's helpful to have an editor like that. Also, sometimes I think it was single user mode. Uh, if you didn't have slash USR, you were really limited to what editors you had back in the day. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. So it closes with Ad Mastery is available now directly from Michael W. Lucas' book site and will most likely appear to other booksellers' catalogs as soon as their systems are able to digest the new data. And closes with do read the book, try out the standard editor, and have fun. 
Yeah. Uh, there's more detail uh, on the post, and I think the book is already available on Amazon and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Head over to do.co slash BSD Now uh, and you can get a $100 credit for 60 days to try out DigitalOcean. Exactly. If you always wanted to run a certain application or multiple applications even in the cloud and see how they work on the uh, evil internet, then you can start a couple of droplets push that service onto it or configure it yourself and let that run. It's quick and easy. The VMs spin up within seconds and they're all backed by SSDs and you can scale them up or down in uh, uh, any can you you like. And they have... Yeah, uh, you know, they have VMs starting as cheap as $5 a month and it includes a terabyte of internet bandwidth uh, and a gig of RAM. That's a lot. Uh, or you can go with uh, CPU optimized droplets. If you're trying to run, you know, your CI/CD environment or something, and need more horsepower. Uh, and all of the droplets also have, or, or always have, hourly pricing. So you actually only pay for the amount of time you have the server on, and you actually get a slight discount if you leave it on for the whole month. You only pay for 28 days instead of the you know 30 or 31 days that are in the month. Yeah. And so the flexible droplets uh, at $15, you can choose between one, two, and three gigs of RAM or uh, one, two, and three virtual CPUs. And all of it comes with 60 gigabytes of disk and three terabytes of internet transfer. Not exactly. Too bad for 2.2 cents per hour. Mm-hmm. And you can choose the data center where they should uh, be around the world, wherever you exactly. might be. You can it might be a data from- center. San Francisco, Toronto, New York, uh, London, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Bangalore, and Singapore. Exactly. I did that off the top of my head. I I guess Alan has one in each of those. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to check out, uh, you always wanted to learn about a certain software system, then check out their community system because there's a bunch of tutorials in there that uh, cover certain things, how to set up um, certain kind of services or uh, everything that you need to know about, I don't know, generating SSH keys and sharing that with uh, your uh, droplet and things like that. That's explained by users pretty easily and you can find some new things that you can try out on your droplet. They also sent me a message recently about the new uh, privacy GDPR stuff and how they handle that in their privacy policy. So they are also ahead of that and uh, being compliant once that law comes into uh, well into place. Uh, also, they asked us to mention that uh, they're planning to run Hacktoberfest this year. Uh, that's a little ways off not until October, but uh, it's basically a month-long hackathon slash celebration of open-source software uh, in partnership with GitHub. Uh, so you will end up uh, supporting open-source software, and you can earn a limited-edition T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so consider that and uh, prepare your repo with a certain tag so that they know that it's participating. And um, yeah, why not? Let's uh, do you want to mention that promo code again? Just uh, in so case. If you want the hundred if you don't have an account yet and want to sign up, if you go to do.co slash BSD now 
uh, it will let you sign up and get $100 of credit in your account to play with. If you already have an account, uh, you can use the coupon code FREEBSD now, and it'll add a $10 credit to your existing account. Yep, that should get you starting. Like, for example, with the thing that we cover next, which is distributed object storage with MinIO on FreeBSD. So if you read distributed, you think, ah, multiple servers connecting to each other. So this is over at Vermaden's blog, which we covered last week already. Uh, but he has a cool tutorial here with pictures and... Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to test up. this and you're going to need six machines... You use the $100 credit and actually run six actual machines. Uh, and it's, you know, a lot less stressful on the available RAM in your laptop than trying to run six VMs on your laptop. <laughs> okay, but starting from the beginning, um, it, uh, it explains a little bit what this whole thing is because you might never have heard about MinIO before. So free and open source distributed object storage server compatible with Amazon S3 version 2 and 4. Uh, their APIs there. Uh, it offers data protection against hardware failures using erasure code and bit rot detection. It also supports highly available distributed setup and provides a confidentiality, integrity, and authenticity assurance for encrypted data with negligible performance overhead. So both the server side and the client side are encrypted. And uh, so you can see that image here for the whole setup they will do in that if you yeah, so you can set up a bunch of separate uh, machines, uh, each with some storage, um, and then uh, the MinIO thing will distribute files so that they're stored. Uh, depending on your configuration, you can say, you know, I have eight servers, and I want to be able to run with any two of them being down at the same time. Yeah, for redundancy. Like uh, so, you know, if you think about doing this with layers, you could have each of these servers be running, you know, RAID Z2 across a bunch of hard drives. And then at a higher level, you're doing a RAID Z2 across all of those servers, meaning that, you know, any block you store is then stored in at least three separate ZFS arrays. Yeah. Or something. Because ZFS, yeah, it's because ZFS is not a distributed file system, so they basically replicate that on top of that. ZFS. So what I say is the MinIO identifies itself as the ZFS of cloud object storage. And the guide will show you how to set up the whole highly available distributed MinIO or MinIO storage of the FreeBSD operating system with ZFS as backend because at the end of the day, the data has to come on the disks and you might as well trust that on ZFS. And on top of that, there's the MinIO data. Yeah. And so uh, looking at his setup here, uh, the setup will assume that you have three data centers and uh, assume that you have two data center in whose the most of the data must reside, and that the third data center will be used as a quorum slash witness role, basically your backup site. Uh, distributed MinIO supports up to 16 nodes slash drives total, uh, so we may juggle with the numbers to balance data uh, between desired data centers. Uh, as we have 16 drives to allocate resources on three sites, uh, we will use 7 plus 7 plus 2 here. The data centers uh, where most of the data must reside have 7 over 16 ratio, while the quorum slash witness data center will only have a 2 out of 16 ratio. Thanks to built-in MinIO redundancy, we may lose or turn off, for example, any of those machines, and our object storage will still be available and ready to use for any purpose. So mm -hmm. in our setup here, uh, we will create 
three jails for our proof of concept Mineo setup. Storage one will be the witness, while storage two and three will be the data. Uh, to distinguish commands I type, uh, he uses the host names here. Ah, I see. Mm -hmm. Yep, so you can see they set it up, uh, create the jails for each of the three, uh, configure them up, and then install the Minio package and get it going. Okay, and there's a small description here what Minio is and does with a couple of commands. Yep, just uh, scrolling through installing the packages here. And we can see we uh, run it on each of the three jails uh, and set up the host file so that we can have short names and then uh, create some directories on each. Oh, yeah. And then later on, there will be a web-based configuration. Yep. Cool. That's something that. for a rainy weekend. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would like to play with this a bit and do some interesting stuff. Yeah, like pulling some disks or uh, see how the failover works. Yeah. Very nice. So, yeah, it's always good to find these t tutorials uh where people can play with that and uh, use it on their favorite BSD. Because I think yeah, this is uh, also possible. Well, and the other thing is, it means you end up with one endpoint, like one URL, and you point the regular Amazon libraries, whether you're using you know, Go, Java, Python, JavaScript, .NET, whatever, uh, at those, and you can add remove files, basically. Mm, oh, yeah, certainly. Yep, Very nice. See. It's all set up there. Uh, so if you're interested, check that out. I also know the FreeNAS people have been playing with this, uh, and it might be a, a standard feature in FreeNAS soon. Yeah, I heard them talk about that, I think, two years ago, uh, uh, before we were leaving AsiaBSDCon at the airport. Mm -hmm. uh, but at that time, I couldn't uh, make heads and tails of what they were talking about. So now this is more clear. I knew that okay. about it because at the FreeBSD Storage Summit, which would have been January 2017, uh, one of the MinIO developers uh, was at the conference and actually uh, talked a bit about how it works and so on. Uh, oh. And I was very interested. Cool. Very good. And our next item is best practices for pledge security. So if you hear pledge, then you know, aha, uh -huh, OpenBSD. Of course, yeah, uh, that's so it. This is from the pages of the KCGI project, uh, which is uh, a secure way of writing web applications. It's a basically a framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is over at Kristaps' uh, website. Mm -hmm. And the best practices go like this. Let's set the record straight for securing KCGI, CGI and fast CGI applications with Pledge. This is uh, focused on secure OpenBSD deployments. So the theory goes... Internally, KCGI makes considerable use of available security tools, but it's also designed to be invoked in a secure environment. We'll start with Pledge, which has been around on OpenBSD since version 5.9. If you are reading this tutorial, you're probably on OpenBSD and you probably have knowledge of Pledge. So how to begin? Read KCGI first. The man page is always good to uh, see and uh, skim over or read in more detail even. It includes canonical information on which pledge promises you'll need for each function in the library. This is just a tutorial. The man page is canonical and overrides what you may read here. Uh, next, assess the promises that your application needs. From KCGI, it's easy to see which promises will need to start. 
You need to augment this list with whichever tools you're also using. And a general push is to start with the broadest set of required promises, then restrict as quickly as possible. Sometimes this can be done in a single pledge, but other times it takes a few. And there's a couple of uh, examples here in code, of course. And the details, if you're interested in those, you can look at the examples or just copy and paste them from the website and you have some basic pledge functionality. So we have, they talk about a little bit more about the fast CGI integration with pledge. So that's uh, pretty straightforward and people should be able to uh, pledgeify, if that's a word, <laughs> their uh, CGI applications. Yeah, so you can see here um, the idea is to lock down the pledge stuff further after you've done the initialization and so on in your application. So, you know, after, uh, just before you start parsing data sent by um, the person on submitting to the website or whatever, maybe you want to lock things down so that it doesn't uh, have any privileges it doesn't need. Mm -hmm. Very cool. It's always good to have sandbox applications. The more we hear about security uh, vulnerabilities, it's good to have something, you know, that secures. Time for the weekly Beastie Bits this week, starting off with April's London BSD meetup. And uh, wait, April? Yeah. Isn't it May already? I misread that. Yeah. A little bit behind there. <laughs> or is that a regular thing each month and we just I picked think the it's pretty regular but it does seem like it's my fault ah there are notes from the meeting here we go ah excellent can, then we cover, cover those <laughs> <laughs> yeah so they they met at the hand and shears in uh mm, they in London. talked about uh finding common workflows across different debuggers and like uh gdb pain versus lldb uh complaints uh Rage quits and cycles of burnout. That's definitely something that happens a lot in uh, open source. Not, not uh, just gaming, testing yeah. CameraFS in the latest version of Dragonfly. Talking about the PNFS on FreeBSD, which actually allows you to do distributed NFS. Uh, clustered file systems and separation of metadata and data across separate hosts. Uh, the fear of key project contributors working on difficult problems uh, being employed by megacorps and going silent. Uh, yep, that's definitely something that I also worry about. Uh, ACPI woes on current hardware and Linux. Uh, reusing code from kernel in user space and building on top of that with uh, bindings like Crash in NetBSD. Uh, Lua sandboxing, ignoring the outsourcing disaster from the last decade and plowing forward in a cost-saving driven exercise. Uh, Peter Wem's collection of hardware from the history of FreeBSD, <laughs> including a dual uh, socket Pentium 90 megahertz with SMP support uh, that was used to write the initial SMC, uh, SMP support in FreeBSD. It's a random find on Peter's old blog, I think. Uh, double encrypting for double agency fun, uh, slow, high multi-core account systems and single-threaded applications, and... Uh, Drama with uh, accountants and floating point precision and rounding errors versus integers. Oh, yeah. So discuss the F-Sync drama uh, from Postgres. Uh, asking Theo about the Rust programming language. That's a <laughs> fun one. Uh, 
contempt-driven software development methodologies. <laughs> Could be a conference talk. That's something I want to hear. <laughs> and uh, features oh. and extensibility of MDB, the Solaris debugger. Mm, yeah, I hear good things about that one. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it seems like a lot of diverse topics and uh, something for everyone, I guess. Okay, so next time we try to uh, find the right month and the right uh, I was thinking they were... Uh, <laughs> oh, hold on. Here, I found it. Ah. Yes. Uh, the May London BSD meetup will be Tuesday, May 22nd. So we've actually even told you early enough that you might be able to go. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, we'll uh, make changes to the show notes. Next up, important for our most people interested in BSD conferences in the European area, Call for Papers for EuroBSDCon 2018 is out, and it's going to be happening in the University Polytechnica of Bucharest, and uh, Romania is uh, worth a trip, of course, in that regard. And a Call for Papers is even a better reason because when you are accepted to give the talk or the tutorial even, they will get you there. And so what they write is that the EuroBSDCon program committee is inviting BSD developers and users, not just developers, users, uh, to submit innovative and original talk proposals not previously presented at other European conferences. Topics of interest to the conference include, but are not limited to applications, architecture, implementation, performance, and security of BSD-based operating system, as well as topics concerning the economic uh, or economic or organizational aspects of BSD use. Presentations are expected to be 45 minutes and are not and are to be delivered in English. Yep. Uh and there's also the call for tutorials. Uh, Half-day tutorials are expected to be two and a half to three hours, and full-day tutorials are expected to be five to six hours uh, and are to be held in English as well. So yeah. if you're going to submit one of those, you should. Uh, the submission period is already open and will close on Sunday, June 17th. That seems far out, but once it's you start less, it's rating only talk. about a month away, and BSD can is going to eat like 10 days of that out of your life. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you should really get on that. Yeah, so that we see you all at EuroBSDCon because I already reserved uh, holiday time for that one, so I will try to make sure to be there. Yep. Uh, next up is the uh, FreeBSD Journal issue for March and April covering desktop and laptop, which is always a topic uh, that people are interested in, especially, can I run BSD on my laptop? Will the battery time uh, be enough? Or how well are the components supported? So that one gives you a laptop shootout article by George Neville Neal. Uh, Alan will have a Who would know, because he bought like four different laptops last year trying to find one that, <laughs> yeah. that was just perfect. Uh, and he settled on the same one as me, the Lenovo X270. But yeah. if you want to find out, uh, you know, how some of that goes, I know... Uh, Colin and one of the people I helped at Linux Fest uh, had the System76 Galago Pro or whatever, and uh, those are seem to be working very nicely as well. Yep, there's also an article about the um, the pain and suffering on the road to resume. You know that your laptop actually does resume and not Mine just go to sleep. Mine and resumes, and the Wi-Fi works fast, yeah. not slow as well. I was like, fast. Ooh. Yeah, see? 
And Alan also has an article about ZFS uh, things coming down the pipe uh, sooner, some sooner rather than later, and some a little bit further out, but they are on the horizon. And um, there's also Illuminating the Desktop Paradigm article, and I have a short uh, book review about the Phoenix Project book, which is uh, interesting for people interested in DevOps. Uh, And the May-June issue will be about security. Uh, and uh, the July-August issue will be about big data. If you have something to contribute there, you should get in touch with the editors of the journal and offer up your article. Uh, yeah. September-October will be about networking, and the November-December will be getting started with the FreeBSD project and documentation. Yeah, we'll always have a, uh, at BSDCAN or before BSDCAN, we have a journal editorial uh, board meeting to discuss the upcoming issues, what went well, what we should change. Uh, so you can uh, stay tuned for more interesting journal articles in the future. But uh, they're 2,500 to 3,000 words usually. Not that hard. Uh, they have professional copy editors and general editors, uh, and they will design it and make it all pretty. You just need yeah. to write the text. Uh, and it's fun. I've done it quite a few times, actually. Yeah, and then you can brag to your friends and say, hey, I've published in an article in a real journal. Yes, that's exactly. yeah. So, yeah, check that out. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, next up is, let's see whether I don't miss anything, uh, LWN follow-up on the Postgres F-Sync issue. We had a couple of episodes before. Yes. Where they... uh, so this is a, a post on the, the Linux Weekly News, I think it's called, or something. Uh, for the saying, developers of yeah. database management systems are, by necessity, concerned about getting data safely to persistent storage. So when the Postgres SQL community found that the way the kernel handles I.O. errors for some file systems could result in data being lost without any errors being reported to the user space, a fair amount of unhappiness resulted. Uh, the problem, which is exacerbated by the way Postgres uh, performs buffered I.O., turns out not to be unique to Linux uh, and will not be uh, solved even there. Uh, or not be easily solved even there. Uh, so they go into some details about it. Uh, in particular, uh, Postgres developers were not pleased. Tom Lane described it as kernel brain damage. Uh, and Robert Haas called it a 100% unreasonable uh, and so on. Uh, in particular, in the early part of the discussion, the Postgres developers were clear enough on what they thought the kernel behavior should be. Pages that fail uh, to be written should be kept in memory in a dirty state uh, for later retries, and the relevant file descriptor should be put into a permanent error state so that the Postgres server uh, cannot miss the existence of a problem. <clears throat> that sounds like exactly what FreeBSD does. Hmm. Yep. Uh and it talks a bit about where things go wrong, uh, and in particular, NetBSD uh, has a bug where we saw that they found, when looking into it, they found that not only did they have the same problem as Linux, but they have two or three other problems related to it as well. Um, then there's also uh, an interesting discussion here about um, how Google actually solved this problem uh, towards a short-term solution. Uh Specifically, at uh, Google, they have their own mechanism for handling I.O. errors. The kernel has been instructed to report I.O. errors via a Netlink socket. A dedicated process gets these notifications and responds accordingly. This mechanism was uh, has never made it upstream, though. 
uh, and intended for this kind of mechanism would be perfect for Postgres as it would make a public appearance in the near future. Uh-huh. Uh, other people have pondered ideas like uh, setting a flag in the file system superblock when an IO error occurs. Uh, a call to syncfs would then clear that flag and return an error if it had been set. Uh, the Postgres checkpointer uh, could make an occasional syncfs call as a way of uh, polling for errors on the file system. That doesn't seem great either. But anyway, mm. we have uh, more discussion of it there. So if you're interested in following uh, Linux as they try to uh, mitigate that. the brain damage of their kernel, um, <laughs> it's there for the watching. Mm. And last but not least, uh, credit where credit is due, I guess, the Association for Computing Machinery recognizes Steve Bourne for outstanding contributions in the computing space. Yeah, uh, well, and specifically to ACM as well. But yeah, of course. Uh, so, if you uh, didn't have the pleasure of meeting him, uh, was it uh, two years ago at uh, BSD yeah, Camp? Yeah, um, that too. Steve Bourne, uh, the creator of the shell that you use, or the shell that you uh, that your, your shell, shell script should on. use. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, actual bin sh. Well, Bash actually has the B for Bourne in the name. It's actually the one not written by Bourne. <laughs> because that's how things go. So bin sh is the born shell, and bash, the born again shell, is uh, somebody's attempt to do better or something. That yeah. went horribly, horribly wrong. <coughs> anyway, uh, yes. So uh, congratulations to Steve on his well-deserved award. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially they mentioned that they um, for reaching out to practitioners through the development of the practitioners board and uh, support of students worldwide uh, through the engagement with and support of the ACM International Collegi- Collegiate Program Contest, mm-hmm. ICPC. Yeah, yeah. so congratulations. And uh, Speaking of things that need to be given awards, oh, yeah. Tarsnap is sponsoring the uh, feedback segment of the show today. Uh, so if you want to securely back up your stuff or your paranoid, uh, which you should be about your backups, uh, Tarsnap is the solution. Uh, it will segment, deduplicate, compress, encrypt, and sign your files before backing them up to the cloud. Uh, and because all this is done uh, with an application uh, for which you can inspect the source code and compile it yourself, you know that it's actually secure unlike every other backup service that the internet might try to sell you. Uh, yes. You don't have the source code. How can you trust it? Uh, yeah. yeah. You and, don't have the source code for the server side of Tarsnap, but the whole point is that you don't need to trust it or won't want to have to trust it. Uh, all of the sensitive bits are done on your computer, uh, and then it just uploaded to the internet as... Uh, encrypted blobs that nobody can access with a key. So as long as you do your part and keep your computer and your key secure, then uh, all your files are backed up. Yep. And you can find popular clients or the Tarsnap client for the most popular operating systems, the Linuxes of this world, the BSDs, Mac OS X, as well as Windows subsystems for Linux. And it's easy to use. If you know how to use Tar, then Tarsnap is just a little addition to it. Um, well, with you the don't key even management. have to know how to use Tire. It's yeah. really that easy. <laughs> See? So check out the source code if you're really paranoid and think there's something going on. But 
uh, you will find nothing that's out of the ordinary. Yep. Uh, and it's prepaid. Uh, so you put money in and you back up stuff. And um, so you never get a surprise bill, right? You put money in and you've already put the money in. You can't spend more than that. Uh, and so it means it's very easy to control the costs. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas some other services, they might just, you get a surprise bill and you'd be like, hey, what's going on here? Yeah, or they give you a fixed that. monthly charge. Yep. Okay, uh, time for the feedback and questions section this week. Uh, starting off with Ray. Uh, speaking at conferences is the topic. Uh, that one goes, hello, Alan. Benedict, congrats to your great show. Thank you. Uh, there's no need to use this message in your feedback and answers section. Wait. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Wait. Okay, that was kind of a, okay. I'm writing you because in one of your shows you made a call to arms to become a conference speaker. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to do that, but I'm not very sure about what to talk about. In my day job, my department uses FreeBSD exclusively. You found you just found your topic. Um, from the engineering desktop to our application servers and PBX systems. But it is standard stuff. SSH, jails, voice over IP, based on FreeSwitch, Postgres, Memcache, Postfix, nothing really exciting. But it is re exciting, if I just interject here. For people who haven't had the chance to set that up or are just beginning, that's new information for them. Yeah, uh, it could be a pretty nice tutorial uh, if you want yeah. to do something like that. But uh, no, uh, talks can be based on anything. It could be even... Uh, a list of your gripes about uh, FreeBSD when you're managing exactly this. You know, yeah. things that could be slightly better. Or some hacks that made something work together that wasn't originally intended for uh, being put together. Or uh, what, what you find boring is super exciting and uh, interesting for other people. So he uh, goes on. On the other hand, when I What I care deeply about and looking regularly at news lately are privacy concerns. I just read an article, for example, where Google is eliminating less work uh, for porn actors from Google Drive. Uh, what hit me most is Google's response. Searches for this material is part automated and part label manual in identifying questionable material. So there are people actually watching what content is on Google Drive and flag it as appropriate and inappropriate. So for the last couple of years, I built my own inexpensive private cloud using OVH as a provider, which gives me a physical server for 36 euros a month, uh, which is two times two terabyte drive, 16 gigs of RAM and eight CPU. See, that's the second talk. Yes, um, that, that talk, I think, <laughs> would be uh, very interesting. Um, I think it's very good for the FreeBSD community to enhance the idea of the, the home lab and this kind of personal cloud type thing, because setting these up and playing with this stuff is how we convert people to lifelong FreeBSD users. Yeah. And if and you put also how we take people that are just users and get them interested in making little tweaks to the operating system and then slowly we suck them in and suddenly they're a <laughs> kernel developer. Like, like we were, or at least you were. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you put privacy on that, that, and, and I mean, encryption, of course, then, By all means, yeah. The installation, um, he writes, uh, consists of jails with authoritative DNS server with uh, BuddyNS, yeah, privacy-oriented DNS server as global master DNS servers, Nextcloud, Rainloop, Webmail for Nextcloud, Postfix, uh, Dovecot, LibreOffice Online, Calendar Tasks, Very Light Project Management, 
uh, Draw.io graphing implementation, Nextcloud Pico CMS integration to use as a blogging engine. Wow, you could basically run a whole conference alone. It's basically just one of these is eat as a talk by its own. Uh, let's encrypt for certificate generation. Yeah, definitely submit to all the BSD conferences with that. At least that should get you uh, one talk slot, if I'm not mistaken. With a couple of oh, phone yeah. apps. I, I would just do, you know, building a privacy cloud. Personal yeah, privacy just, cloud. That's what I would I, call it, too. Personal privacy cloud. Yeah. All on FreeBSD? This is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, with a couple of phone apps, two-factor authentication, and application-based passwords, I have a very nifty private cloud on a dedicated server for much less than you would spend going out with your friends, especially our friends when we go out. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, because generally if I want to go out with my friends, we have to all fly somewhere first. <laughs> so he writes, I'm not sure if it, if this is material for a privacy-oriented talk, yes, it is. But one could integrate also VPN services and maybe Tor proxy. But if you guys think that is that it could be an interesting talk, I would like to make a presentation about how it all works together. Give people some ideas to create their own private islands. Uh, I'm currently looking into creating Ansible playbooks to set up the whole server with the push of a button. Your BSDCon yep. is the next one. Yep. Uh, so, and you have about a month to... Write the proposal. The proposal they're looking for is like a hundred words, so it's not very. It's less than the email you sent us. Uh, but yes, uh, personal private cloud, uh, or uh, if somebody else was interested in something like this, but the, the home lab version of something like this, um, I think those uh, both would be very well received talks. Mm, sure, tutorials, even wow, mm-hmm. good stuff. Great okay. that you. Uh, that you get so much done on the BSDs and uh, yeah, good stuff. So thanks for writing us. And uh, next up is Casey uh, with uh, some general questions. As always, I really enjoy the show. Please keep up the good work. Yeah, we we try. <laughs> uh, I recently watched episode two thirty seven Asia BCCon twenty eighteen, and when I listened to the feedback section, I thought of a couple questions. In response to And Andre's question, Alan mentions using a storage shelf to expand the storage capacity of his server. I have a Supermicro MBD X ten SL seven FO motherboard uh, on his FreeNAS server. Uh, he has eight. At eight times SAS two six gigabytes per second ports, while LSI two three zero eight and six SATA ports from the chipset. I also have an M ten fifteen, which I could install for another eight SAS parts. The problem is that my four U rack mount case only has fifteen three point five inch bays, of which only twelve are usable with good airflow. I'm above eighty seven percent used space in my primary pool. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, it's uh, there a cheap storage shelf or server case that either of you could recommend to give me more drive base. Yeah, um, so uh, what I did was call IX and tell them uh, what my problem is, and they offered, uh, there was a 2U one for 12 or 24 drives, and then 3U and 4U and whatever, all the different sizes. Um, and you can get them in 6 gig or 12 gig SAS. So you could do 6 gig SAS, um, and then... Uh, if you already have the controller cards and not enough ports, or sorry, if you have enough controller cards and you just don't have enough uh, room for the drives, you can get an adapter to turn your internal SAS port into an external SAS port. Uh, but likely, what I did with mine was just IX shipped me the chassis, uh, the the shelf, and uh, a new adapter card, and I just installed the card. Uh, the so it would be like a twenty three oh eight. E instead of I. Um, and so 
it has two SAS ports out the back of the machine instead of uh, inside. And then there's just a cable you run to connect the chassis. Uh, and it just works. Um, you know, I bought the 4U shelf that holds 44 drives, which is a lot, but... Uh, <laughs> You never know how much uh, or how yeah. soon you need those to expand. Okay, the second part is, in response to Morgan's question, Alan mentions the Lenovo fix and GPT Active as potential workarounds for Morgan's problem, installing FreeBSD on a server that has something wrong with its UEFI implementation. I have an older Dell laptop that may be suffering from a similar problem. I have been trying to install TrueOS uh, on it for a few years now, oh, but it does not work yet. Um, I want to do a boot with Windows, so I can't really use MBR since my drive is GPT formatted. Every time I try to install TrueOS, it seems to install, but when I, it tries to boot, after a bootloader, the screen gets garbled. I've tried to get help via the TrueOS forums, but nobody seems to be able to figure it out. Do you know if TrueOS has these two workarounds available or if they would even help in my case? So there are okay, two so if you get links. screen garbling, that's a different issue. Uh, when you're in the bootloader, if you press, I think it's three or whatever, to drop to the command prompt of the bootloader, um, and you do, I think it's GOP space list, it'll list the resolutions, and then you have to set the GOP something to the, the right resolution, and it seems like it's just something's getting confused and you're not getting the right resolution, and that's why you're getting a garbled screen. Um with uh, the Lenovo fix or GPT Active fix for Dells, that's when it says no operating system found or something when you try to boot. If you're getting the bootloader, you're not having uh, the Lenovo fix or GPT Active bug. Uh, but mm -hmm. if you search for like FreeBSD loader GOP, uh, it'll have the instructions on how to get the list and uh, select the right resolution. Also, I think in newer versions of Head, uh, the detection code for the resolution is better. I know for a, a little while it actually went from working to not working on my X220, but they've uh, since fixed that as well. Yeah, they enabled much higher resolutions than before So yes. for UEFI. Okay, I uh, hope that solves your problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, next up is Jeremy with ZFS in the Enterprise. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, can you describe how you would set up multi-host ZFS system? Imagine General, that probably wouldn't uh zfs doesn't really do multi-host but anyway yeah. continue with the question yeah imagine that you get one terabyte luns for your storage team via fiber channel and you want to create a 50 terabyte volume you want at least an active passive setup for the server side so you say you have two servers and both are attached to all of the 50 luns how can you set up uh, zfs to safely fail over if one machine dies didn't we cover minio in the show before yeah but that's different it's not this. yeah uh, so what he wants is basically high availability um oh like so hast. it depends on how your luns work if you were doing this with physical hardware instead of uh luns off of uh your fiber channel sas uh san um you would use sas reservations to stop the second machine from trying to use the hard drive while the first machine was still using it um hmm uh, so there's some example scripts of how to do something like this with carp and hast um, in the FreeBSD wiki. I think it's in the hast wiki page um, that kind of describes it. Uh, 
and also at the OpenZFS Developer Summit 2017, there was talk about some upcoming work on what's called mount uh, or multi-mount protection, uh, which is an extra feature to make sure that your secondary server doesn't try to uh, import the the pool with your 50 disks um, while the other one's still using it. Uh, if you get into some kind of like split brain kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, your best bet is probably the Hast thing. Let me just double check the URL for that. Yeah, just search the wiki. There should be a, a match, or at least. Yeah, I, I got it. Yeah. Um, yes, all the scripts are included on the wiki. So I've added that to the show notes. Okay. Uh, but it seems yes, like another this... option is to do something uh, like the MinIO thing and. Uh, but in that case, I think you actually need three machines as the minimum. Yeah, for the quorum. Um, but, you know, you could do that as like... Uh, you could divide the 50 as like, you know, 20, 20, 10 or something like that to get your uh, storage and so on. Yeah. Uh, the advantage of something like Minio or Ceph or Gluster uh, is that you probably will be able to write to two out of three of the machines concurrently and get and also read from them and get higher uh, throughput than you might get otherwise. Mm. And the servers have to figure out the current version or what's the most recent one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks for that question. And last but not least is Lars uh, with a civil infrastructure platform use of BSD. So the trade association, the Linux Foundation, has been promoting a project called the Civil Infrastructure Platform for a few years. It has ambitious goals and its self-description makes it sound like a general FOSS project. So in theory, there should be a place for the BSDs within it. So the description here follows... Civil Infrastructure Platform is a collaborative open source project hosted by the Linux Foundation. The CIP project is focused on establishing an open source base layer of industrial-grade software to enable the use and implementation of software building blocks in civil infrastructure projects. Currently, civil infrastructure systems are built from the ground up with little reuse of existing software building blocks. What kind of work is currently going on in any of the BSD communities regarding critical civil infrastructure? Um. I don't know how much in particular. It mostly comes down to uh, some company or government hiring people to do it. Yeah. Didn't the um, reproducible builds sub-project, isn't that part of that um, no. initiative? Or is that something no, else? It's something isn't else. It? Um, right. You know, uh, part of the, the point of the BSD license uh, and and so on is this idea of just having a you know uh, solid uh, production grade implementation uh, or industrial grade implementation of every feature and having it available under a BSD license so anyone can use it as the basis uh, for their civil infrastructure or whatever um, whether or not the the resulting thing happens to be BSD licensed. Um, so yes, I agree that it'd be good to see the BSDs do stuff like this. Although, uh, you know, in the description of the project, they don't actually mention 
what features or what things are actually doing such that we could say that somebody is working on that or not. It's a bit nebulous, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, that's the question. What role would you, uh, would the BSDs have in building such an infrastructure and specifically in that project? Uh, so, so the BSDs themselves probably wouldn't. It was more that uh, somebody would decide to work on a certain sub-project of this civil infrastructure platform and would decide to do it with BSD. It's not really something that the project would decide to do. Mm. You know, we make an operating system. If people want to use it in the civil infrastructure project, we'd be glad to help them. Uh, but somebody would have to actually, you know, decide to use FreeBSD to solve problem X in the civil infrastructure project. Yeah, and some of the components of the operating system, uh, like for example, OpenSSH, is not just limited to OpenBSD. It's pretty much on all the Linux servers as well, and that makes a small, tiny building block, but an important one, which is developed by the BSDs, and I think sometimes doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, uh, so basically, um, key point, the Linux Foundation is a trade association that charges a lot of money for membership, whereas the FreeBSD Foundation is a nonprofit who gets donations. Uh, and if you look at the scales of their budgets, you see why the Linux uh, Foundation can pay people to work on civil infrastructure platform and uh, if BSC were to be involved, it would have to be volunteer-based effort. Yeah, that's one of the differentiator. It's not saying one is good or better than the other, but it's just different approaches. Okay, I think that's been uh, all for that question. And that pretty much wraps up our show. Again, if you have similar questions or found something about the BSDs that you would like us to cover, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv and it will appear in a future episode. Thanks for watching. Yep, see you next week. <laughs>